This episode is part of Season 1 of MesoTV, a program created and produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. We thank the following sponsors for their support of our organization and its work. Novacure, Bellick & Fox, LLP, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC, Vogelzang Law, and Merrill Lynch. I'm Heather Von St. James, and I am a co-chair of the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation Community Board, along with Katie Jameson. And today we're bringing you Community Conversations, A Life in the Day of the Survivor, or Life After Treatment. And uh, today we brought uh, to our panel a few people in various parts of their journey with mesothelioma. Um, and I'm going to let them introduce yourself. Real quick about myself, I'm a 14 plus year survivor of pleural mesothelioma, and um, I'm currently no evidence of disease. So Rich, I'll let you go ahead and, and go next. So uh, my name is Rich Mosca. I am uh, actually in December, I'll be a 14 year peritoneal survivor. And I've been involved with the foundation for well over 10 years on and off in different capacities. Liam, go ahead. Uh, I'm Liam. I'm uh, a three-year survivor. Uh, I'm 30 years old. Um, currently, I don't have any symptoms whatsoever. I was accidentally diagnosed. Um, and, yeah, I'm just, you know, just trying to be a part of this community, you know, across the world. So, Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to add that Liam is joining us from Nottingham. And so thank you for... Uh, coming to us from across the pond, so to speak. No worries. Uh, John, go ahead. Um, John Panza, I'm, a, I'm eight years out from diagnosis and my first round of treatments. And I, uh, I went about five, almost six years before I had a recurrence of the uh, plural miso. Um, and uh, I just finished up uh, four infusions of chemo. And um, so here I am, eight years later. Thank you. And Jill, our moderator for the community board this morning, is joining us from the great state of Ohio. Jill, introduce yourself, please. Okay, my name is Jill Waite. Um, I am involved with the MISO Foundation because my father, Bruce Waite, was a career educator and um, was diagnosed in 2002 with um, mesothelioma and passed away in 2003. And since then, this will be our ninth year of the Bruce A. Waite um, 5K um, that we do. My dad was a runner as well, and so that's why we chose to do a 5K. I'm also a licensed mental health therapist and an EMDR therapist, and um, that's what I do with my life. So we thought Jill would be a wonderful moderator for uh, this group today because of her background in therapy and her experience as a caregiver um, and as an incredible fundraiser for the MISO community. Each one of you has been through treatment for mesothelioma and um, are considered survivors. And so I think one of the things that that the community would like to know is um, what do each of you think is the hardest part about the treatment process? Um, I think the mental battle, I think, was probably um, you don't know what's going to happen. And then so you're going into this blind and they can tell you, oh, this might happen, this might happen. But until you go through it, you don't know what's going on. 
um, and then you have that first chemo or that those first couple radiation treatments and you start understanding what your body's going through and then it's almost like oh god you know so it's almost the anticipation I think was worse and then the other thing that really drove me crazy was the I don't know, toxic positivity from people was really hard. Um, so I know it's kind of weird and that's like a whole nother conversation we can have, but um, but it's been a really long time. So it's kind of like a bad dream now. I, I don't remember a lot of it, to be honest with you. Okay. Yeah, it, you know, for me, you know, it's almost uh, like Heather, it's almost 14 years. I'm no evidence of disease since my first surgery. Um, I think the biggest issue I had was trying to get back to what the new normal was. I couldn't wait to get back to that new normal. And, um, and then the worry after that, obviously, but that, that was probably the toughest part about it. it was, uh, you know, I was 54 when I was diagnosed. So I was, you know, I, I still had a lot of, a lot of time left in me and I, I couldn't wait to get back. And I had no, I had no idea what this disease was until it hit me. And, and like Liam, it hit me, uh, we found it accidentally. And I went from I'm going on vacation to, oh, by the way, you're going to be, uh, you're going to have this major operation, you're going to have all this chemotherapy, and your life is going to change. And probably that was the biggest, the, the toughest part was wanting to get back to that new normal as fast as I could. I think for me, it's, um, I was diagnosed at 38. And like every, like most people, it was by accident. Um, they found it. And, uh, and I went, I immediately went into treatment. So I didn't even get a chance to really think about what I was going to do. I went from being diagnosed to starting chemo three days later. Um, and then having my lung removed a couple months later and then having radiation after that. So I, it was a whirlwind um, starting in June of 2012 through December of 2012. Much of it I do not remember because <laughs> I was sufficiently doped up and, you know, and recovering. Um, I think for me, it was waking up in January and realizing that I had to go back to work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. One, one lung down and, um, and 36 pounds lighter. Um, wow go yeah and so i think it was uh for me the biggest thing was knowing that my students and my friends were looking at me differently and not so much dead man walking but um looking at you and thinking this guy's really ill like he's really sick and i looked sick and i looked yeah. pretty beat i looked pretty beaten up so for me it was the psychological battle of trying to convince people that i was okay um when all you know evidence would suggest otherwise uh for me um i was 30 when i was diagnosed um and it literally was an accident it was through falling off a three-story building um uh and luckily for me i survived it holy <laughs> um, oh man uh, yeah, and I only had a week in hospital, so they weren't too bad. But um, for me, it was, I watched my grandma go through all this. She died of peritoneal. Um, so 
I watched her struggle towards the end. And when I was diagnosed, that's all I could picture myself is in her position in that mm. spot at that time when she lost all of her weight and she was sick. She couldn't go to the toilet and stuff like that. Um, but then I had four rounds of chemo. I've got no symptoms and I still have no symptoms. Um, and touch wood, it remains out for a while. <laughs> um, but then I started to realise that, right, okay, I can still do bike rides. I can still play sports. I can still go to work and stuff like that. And then as time went on, I learned that I'm okay. You know, fair enough, I've got to live with this disease. But a, a phrase just stuck to me um, a few years ago, uh, and it just stuck with me. And I refused to be a statistic. Um, and that's what I do now. I just sort of just live each day as it comes and crack a smile, I suppose. And I've learned to live with it, you know, over the years. But that was the hardest thing for me is visualizing my, my grandparent, my grandma mm -hmm. in that position because I know what it was like. Mm -hmm. So, psychologically, it for a few months it killed me. Do you feel that your doctor addressed? all of your concerns and your questions and your needs, even after all of the treatment? I mean, do you feel that you were prepared to step, step out of the treatment into, as you said, Rich, you're trying to get back to whatever that new normal is as quickly as possible. Do you feel that your doctor helped facilitate that for you? At that time, no, no. I, I can remember laying in the hospital and uh, my wife, Laura, running around the hospital saying, what is this disease? What are we who do I go for help? And even the social worker at the, at the hospital had no idea. So yeah. you know, we're lucky we found the foundation eventually through other, you know, through, through uh, just an email list. And then when Mary left and, and went to the foundation, I was actually Mary's last patient. And mm -hmm. uh, when she left, we stayed connected and that's how we actually found the, the foundation in our lives. But now it was basically, here's your surgery. This is your course of, uh, you know, chemotherapy, this is what we're going to do, you know, come back in six weeks. Yes. My doctors, I mean, up front, they explained everything to me. It was, it was mostly the, you know, once you step, step, you know, stepped out of the hospital. And yeah. Yes. You know, Push you out there. Story. I had the opposite experience. I've been going to the Cleveland Clinic now for eight years. I'm lucky enough that the Cleveland Clinic is ex exactly five minutes from my house down the hill over here. Um, They've been um, nothing short of amazing for these eight years. They walked me through what to expect, how to deal with it, to get my affairs in order. They had everything really well lined up. And they were very sensitive to the fact that I'm, I was young. I was 38. My wife was 36. We had a four-year-old child. Um, they were, they were really great. I always say the doctors are great at treating the cancer, but they suck at treating the person. <laughs> um, you know, they were great with the cancer and great with the treatment. Like, okay, you know, this is what you're going to do. So they were very good at the, you know, the, the doctor part of it. But when it came to the personal part of it, um, mm -hmm. I would say like the seventh year after my survival, um, I kind of hit a really low spot. Um, because I, I didn't know what to do with myself. I, I couldn't go back to work. Um, I didn't know what I was doing with my life. And I was really, I had PTSD because every time my daughter got sick, I would freak out like, oh my God, she's got cancer. Um, but my doctor's like, oh, you're fine. Go home. You'll, you'll be great. Everything's good. You're healthy. Be thankful. Go, go, 
you should just be happy you're here. You know, and I, I think that is so patronizing because when you're diagnosed with cancer, the whole foundation of your life crumbles and you go through treatment and you go through the motions and you go through all this stuff and you fight like hell to live. And then you're on the other side of it and everybody thinks you're supposed to be this happy, like, oh, I'm so thankful I'm here and I am very thankful I'm here. But my God, give me some coping skills. Nobody is set up to cope with life after cancer and what that brings. Yeah. It's a funny story. I, about when I got out of treatment in, in December of 2012, by my first scans, my, my first follow-up scans, which were around March, um, I had developed a lot of anxiety about going back to work and I was kind of paralyzed in the morning. I was having panic attacks, which is really unusual for me because I'm usually pretty, you know, pretty chill about stuff. But um, so I, I, I went to my scan and then when we were going over the results of my scan, my doctor said, hey, I got this survey I want you to fill out. And I was like, oh, okay. So Jane, my wife is there and the, the nurses are there and he hands it to me. And it's obviously a psychological profile thing, right? And I start filling it out and I look at him and I look at Jane and I'm like, I know what you guys are up to here. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out that Jane had called ahead of time and said, hey, I'm really oh, worried. Uh -huh. And so they just, bam, they took care of it. And but they- it would be advocacy of your wife that put With it the advocacy motion. of my wife, right. yeah. Absolutely. It wasn't just they, an automatic. No, it wasn't. But, but mm -hmm. it, the cool thing was, is they had the system in place. Yeah. And so once the trigger was triggered, everything, everything fell into place. And it made a huge difference to me to have my oncologist be the one to hand me that survey. Yeah, there's a history of mental illness and a, and a history of anxiety after cancer and depression. It's like how many cancer patients have to take antidepressants while they're going through treatment? Right. Yeah. Isn't that a clear-cut indication that maybe there's a problem that these people need mental health um, and mental health support? Um, I was never even offered anti-anxiety meds. I was never offered anything until I went searching. Uh because my husband was like, you got to do something because man, you are off the deep end, you know? <laughs> and it was through, you know, somebody else. I just thought that's how it had to be. And I don't know if things are any different in the UK, Liam. Um, um, well, my, I could probably, my situation was very similar to John. Um, <clears throat> when I was diagnosed, uh, there was very firm, but fair and literally straight after treatment and straight after being diagnosed um, with Mesophilioma UK, which is a charity over here. Yep. Um, they've been nothing short of amazing that, you know, they communicate with the patients to just cold call and see if you're okay. Um, they put, help you put all your affairs in place um, as well. We've also got a place called Macmillan. Mm -hmm. um, and they help with all your mental health issues, anybody that's struggling, um, but not just me as a patient, um, but my family as well. Mm -hmm. um, so my wife, she could access it. Um, my parents can access it. You know, one of the things that also we've left out here is just our caregivers or our, you know, our right. husbands mm -hmm. and wives that are the ones that are, they're our real eyes. Yep. <laughs> Right. Yep. I remember laying on the couch 
uh, at eight o'clock in the morning watching the news and Laura going to work and coming back at five o'clock and I'm in the same position. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and you know, she sees it and you know, she's kicking my butt off the, off the couch basically and, and getting me moving. Right. You know, so, you know, we have to take those people into account as well. Mm -hmm. I, and think I, I, was, I was quite lucky as well because um, I didn't really have a choice to sit down there and to just sit and dwell on the matter because um, our daughter, she was only, she was just, she was one. Um, mm -hmm. So she was still in, um, we still had, you know, still had to change your bum and stuff like that. When the wife was at work, I still had to do the, uh, the parental mm -hmm. side of things. So I never stopped doing what I did from that point of view. So that just took my mind off a lot of things as well. That worked, that worked for me a great deal too. Having Ava be, at the time, she by then she was five years old and knowing that I had to be a dad and I had to do all the dad things and I had to stay on task and take care of myself and not dwell, um, that made a huge difference. And then on the other hand, my wife was really funny about it. We've, all, we've been together since we were very young. Like she was 14 and I was 16 when we met. So we've been together now 30 years and um, married for 22. And so she was really funny because she told me that she had, she goes, I've made such an emotional investment in this marriage that I'm not gonna quit, you know? Um, because as she said, she didn't wanna have to start over again with somebody else. Um, <laughs> She's got you trained. Well, yeah, she's gonna take so, pictures of her. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 so, so Jane, Jane really cracked the whip when it came to, for instance, I lost 36 pounds you know, she helped me gain that back in almost no time at all with my required milkshakes every night, my protein shakes and everything. She was just like, you know, you're not, you know, and she got me back, back behind my drums again as fast as possible. Um, she, she helped coordinate that. So I wasn't sitting around. I'm not a very nice person when I'm not playing music. So she made it a point of getting me back behind the kit. You know, it's little things like that. It, 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 it it's, um, you hate to call it a team effort because it's such a cliche, but it is. It's a team yeah. effort. Yeah. And if you're lucky enough to have a really good team of people around you, then it makes a huge difference. It truly does. From the mental health professional perspective, I, I believe wholeheartedly that, um, Heather, you mentioned PTSD and depression and anxiety, and I believe it all goes together with being diagnosed um, I know we keep coming back to this, you know, and falling off. Of, uh, okay, anyway, but if and falling off it, you know, a ladder. But anyway, um, so there are these moments that that when our brain does not process trauma the way it processes a regular memory, um, and so it kind of gets stuck there, and so different things can trigger it. And 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 you talked about being triggered with that. I can tell you from my personal perspective, my dad's diagnosis was accidental. Um, he just he was a runner, and he started not to be able to breathe very well, and so they they misdiagnosed him and found found the miso accidentally, so to speak. Um, and what happened after he passed away is then when my mom went to have surgery and they buzzed the little buzzer because they had a question for me, my, I, I was triggered so badly that I ran through the hospital, left my purse in the other room somewhere because I just needed to get there because, oh, no, I'm going to lose another parent, oh, right? Wow. Um, yeah. And so I understand that. So after all of that happened and after my dad passed away and I started thinking about things from 
the caregiver perspective and, and, you know, sticking with my dad through the whole thing is why are we as mental health professionals not involved in the process? Um, you know, because you have the, the, the traumatic moment of being diagnosed and, and, and the family members, the caregivers and all of that, there, there is, there's so much that goes with that. You know, I do work here, I do work here in Mansfield with a, with a bariatric doctor. They're diligent about getting their people counseling. Why are, why are we as, as, um, people who are trained in trauma or anxiety or depression not brought in more to assist in the process for 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 people you know who've been diagnosed and surviving cancer. So um, yeah. ten million dollar question. Yeah, you know, what kind of things and precautions do you take for yourself now as far as your health goes? Like, do you do you make special dispensation um, for like what you eat or working out things like that? John's already left. I can I can actually answer that. I have one vice only, and it's it's this. Uh, beef I always tell beef I always jerky. tell people. Well, that's only when I'm touring. Oh, I'm touring, okay. I, only when, you're touring. when I'm on tour, I eat a lot of beef jerky. Okay. Um, I always tell people I'm a coke addict. Um, <laughs> nice. And so it I will say that has been catching up with me lately because my triglycerides are a bit high. And it is a direct result of my, my Coke habit. Um, you know, I, for me, the biggest lifestyle change is, is I have to actually eat three meals a day now. And I can't survive on garbage. And I can't go on tour and eat a bunch of crap every single day for a week or two. So I think that that's a big part of it. And then the other thing is the medications for me. Um, I developed AFib right after my surgery, kept me in the hospital an additional five days. So I have a medication I take for that. Um, I don't take any pain medication at all. I won't, I won't take any pain medication. Um, I refuse to take any kind of like uh, opioids or things like that. So I think the biggest challenge for me has really been just adjusting to having to live like a normal person and not like a musician pretty much the same I, everything in moderation and you know one day i can have pizza the other day i can have it what we call is a, a traditional english sunday dinner um mm -hmm. but no when i when i first got diagnosed i was i still had the rehab i was still going through rehab of my injuries that I sustained when i had the accident so i couldn't walk for six months um oh. and then um I had to learn to walk. Oh my gosh. Um, I still limp, still got a little bit of a limp now. Um, so for about two years, I struggled with rehabilitation from my injuries as well. So for that first couple of years, I had to watch what I ate. Um, now it's just everything in moderation. Now, now I play, I, I play sports. I, I do, you know, I do everything as normal as possible. You know, I, I was never a big exerciser before this happened. I uh, exercise more now than, uh, than before. Um, you know, Dietary-wise, about three weeks or about two weeks after I got out of the hospital, I had a bad experience with a nice steak because I just over <laughs> it just destroyed me. And I pretty much, I mean, my wife and I, if we have one one piece of red meat a month, that's a lot. So, wow.
we do a lot of chicken and fish and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and our biggest vice is we like to polish off a bottle of wine with dinner every night. And again, you know, we're talking, uh, you know, I'm probably the worst example because from, I found out by accident, I did not have symptoms. I just went for my annual physical and my doctor, and I, I remind him of this every time I see him. The last thing he asked me was anything else you want to talk about? And I mentioned something and he raised his eyes. And uh, it was a, you know, off to the races. You know, never, my life changed in, with one question. But other than that, much as far as I think as time goes on, year by year, month by month, the regiment well for me the regimental side of things of going from oh i've got to do this i've got to do that i've got i've got, I've got to eat healthy i've got to get my greens down me and everything else and i've got to run 10 miles a day just to keep fit i think the longer it goes on the less you do mm -hmm. and i think that's and i don't know why i don't know if it's just a psychological thing whether you forget you've got cancer because there is times where i forget um yeah. unless somebody asks me about it um I think that's that's what I found that you just tend to just you we we call it falling off the wagon um on whatever you're trying to do um but yeah that's what I've found um yeah just quickly um I'm American as you can hear but um I live in the southwest of France in uh, actually on the water um in this village oh, and um, I was diagnosed in 2013 here in France with um, peritoneal mesothelioma um, by chance, which it sounds like I'm not alone <clears throat> in this um, similar type thing. I, you know, was getting a checkup for something else and they happened to find all sorts of fun tumors flying around that they didn't, nobody knew were there. Um, so I had um, debulking surgery and high pec um, at my local cancer hospital in Bordeaux. Thankfully, there was um, a surgeon there that uh, specialized in peritoneal disease. He's not a meso specialist, but he is a specialist in rare diseases of the peritoneal. So I was quite fortunate in that. Um, and so now I'm, I'm seven years out um, and uh, doing really well, uh, I have to say. I mean, I, I don't know if there are any of the peritoneals on here, but I've had major diet and lifestyle changes um, after surgery, I've had seven um, emergency intestinal blockages since my debulking and high pack. Um, so I have to limit my diet to very little fiber, which is tough because I was basically a vegetarian before this all started. So um, I've learned over time which vegetables and fruits I can eat and how I can eat them um, in what form. Um, I'm sitting next to my juicer, my juice extractor. <laughs> Um, that helps me to get my vitamins. But um, yeah, and uh, I've, I have had all my treatment here in France. Initially, I thought I had to come home, quote unquote, to the US when I got sick. That was just kind of a natural reflex. Um, and in hindsight, I'm really quite grateful for where I am. Um, most of the care has been excellent. It's 100% free um, and 100% unlimited. So that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. So <laughs> I, you know, I really, you know, if, if I could have chosen a place to be sick, I think I found the right place to be sick. Um, 
but yeah, no, I, I, I'm really quite grateful and um, just kicking in on what I heard since I've been on the call. Um, we, we were accompanied from the first day at the cancer hospital by a psychologist, both my husband and I, um, from day one, and she's been by our side for seven years um, to, to kind of, you know, take us through the steps of, of trauma um, and post-traumatic stress. I hear you, Heather. And took me through phases of depression. Uh, thankfully, that's um, better now. Um, yeah, so that's, that's my story in a nutshell. Um, it's been nice hearing just quickly what, what you guys have been saying, and uh, I'll, I'll let you all continue, and I'll, I'll kick in uh, when it's my turn. Thank you. I think one of the things that um, would be a message to pass along is a message of, of hope. When people watch this and they see you, they're going to have hope that it is, there's a possibility for life after treatment. Um, and, and we use the word survivor. When, you know, when I think about all of you, I think you're survivor because we say, hey, you've survived this. And so that makes you a survivor. Not all of us like labels, but um, so I, I guess if survivor is the term that you use for yourself, what, what meaning do you attach to that? And if there's another word, please educate us on what that is. Oh, I like survivor. Uh, I think I think that's a perfect uh, description. You know, it's just. Uh, I mean, how else would I explain? You know, I have a tattoo. I say, you know, what's your tattoo? It's, well, I'm a measles survivor. Mm -hmm. Measles is a very unique disease as well. I say thriver because I believe I did more than just survive. I, I thrive in life. Um, so like when I'm writing something, I say cancer thriver, which yeah, sounds kind of dorky sometimes, but that's how I feel. I might be the uh, outlier. I, it might just be the punk rocker in me. I have no idea. I've, <laughs> I've, never, I've never liked the word survivor because mm. for me, it's just a, that's just a really crappy 80s band. Um, and so <laughs> I've always been... <laughs> I've always no. been a little, I've always been a little averse um, to that label. I think I'm averse to labels in general, though. I think that's part of my problem. So I, when people, you know, talk about my situation, I'll use the word uh, patient that I'm still a, a miso patient because as far as I'm concerned, well, I still am actually right now, but as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, I remain patient, you know, um, both as a patient of the hospital, but also patient with um, myself and my disease and understanding that that's that this is a slow process. We refer to ourselves as meso warriors, um, which is very similar to, you know, like, like John said, so the word survivor is sort of really hit the nail on the head. Um, but we refer, so there's a few of us, including myself, that we refer ourselves as meso warriors and it, for me, it's about not letting the whole thing just beat you down. Um, you, you know, physically, it can drain you, and but mentally as well. And if you let that just suffocate you, um, it's a it's it's a long drop. Um, so it's just take each day as not don't live each necessarily after live each day as your last but at least try your best.
Um, I don't identify with survivor only because I find it um, selfish because I don't think personally, I've seen so many people survive, you know, death of a family member, other forms of cancer, other illnesses. Um, I feel like when I, I, I've, I've never said I'm a cancer survivor. Um, I mean, life, it, we're, none of us are coming out of life alive. Um, and I just think Mezo is part of my journey. Um, and I don't know if it's what's going to take me out or if it's going to be COVID or if it's going to be, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I struggle with the survivor thing only because I've seen too many people abuse it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had a big issue in the beginning, my diagnosis with um, feeling left out because there's so much emphasis on, at least in France, I don't know any Mezo patients in France, just to put that out there. We, the French don't communicate. They're not into community when it comes to illness. Um, and so I don't know anyone, but the only community that does exist here for cancer patients is the breast cancer community. Mm. And they're very cool. Um, and it's all about, I'm a breast cancer survivor. And it's this big, da -da -da -da, you know, kind of like superwoman thing. And it makes me mad, like crazy mad, not angry mad, crazy mad. Um, and I, so, you know, I, I haven't found a name for, for what this is other than a big, huge piece in the middle of the road. Um, <laughs> I think, I think it's interesting that every patient that I've met over the years, those who have, um, you know, we, we've had time to talk differ in their self-labeling and how they, how they go about this. And the breast cancer thing is really interesting because there is kind of a united front there. And a lot of it was Susan G. Komen, but a lot of it I think also is just, it's a, they're unified by the cancer and their survival. But MISO is such a weird disease and we are, there are so few of us um, and and there, and, and there are even fewer of us that live for five years, seven years, eight years, 12 years, you know, that I think you're so much in the whirlwind the entire time that you may or may not even have a chance to really think about yourself. Um, you know, I, I've latched on to Survivor um, for Mizo. Now, I've had another cancer. I don't consider it I survived it. Right. Mizo... Meso, to John's point, I mean, Meso is just one of those things where, first of all, disaster that we have to even have mesothelioma for all the obvious reasons. The other mm -hmm. ones are just genetic things. That's what, yeah, that's why I latch on to, to survivor more than anything else. If you were speaking with someone who is going through treatment and coming to the end of their treatment, and getting ready to go forth into life after treatment, I, what is your piece of advice that you would impart and be as real as you can. I don't think I really need to <laughs> say that at this point, but um, I want you to be real because there, again, we, there's no fluff in MISO from, from diagnosis through treatment, through whatever happens after that. There's not, there's hope though. And I do say there's always, a, there's hope within realism. And so that hope is, this is, this is each one of you speaking forth on, on what piece of advice would you give from your personal perspective to those who are coming out of the treatment and getting ready to enter back into life post-treatment? I, I have an expression I use when I speak to new patients. Um, take your life one day at a time, worry about tomorrow, worry about tomorrow when it gets here. 
you know, because, you know, it really puts life in perspective that, you know, I'm here almost 14 years. If I would have waited six months after I spoke to my doctor and it still took three months to diagnose, but if I would have waited six months, I probably wouldn't be here. So every day is a precious day. And, you know, I, I guess it's the, it's the anxiety that Heather was talking about, the scanxiety. Um, you don't know until tomorrow gets here. You know, so don't, don't, don't blemish today because you're worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, live today and worry about tomorrow when it gets here. That's probably the best way I can, I can explain. Thank you. My advice is find the community. Um, I think the community and the community support is what gets you through the shitstorm part of it, like the aftermath. Having people to talk to, like John and I commiserate quite a bit. Katie and I talk a lot about, Katie and I are known for driving around and talking to each other. <laughs> and that's how we come up with ideas like this community panel. Um, but it's like having a community, somebody who knows intimately what you've been through, what your body's been through, and can help you kind of be like, hey, that's not right. You should probably talk to your doctor about it. And somebody to help you find your voice to advocate for yourself. Because it's not just a matter of, okay, you're done with treatment. Here's your, your diploma and go ring that bell. That's not the end of treatment. That's... Right. That's to me, it's insulting to say that's the end because that's just the beginning. That's the end of active, like really fighting for your life treatment. Every day from here on out is going to be something new. And being thankful is part of it, but part of the journey is also addressing the anger, addressing the sorrow, and that you're going to have shit days and you're going to have really good days and it's all okay. Um, and that I think is, is the best advice that I could give is, is that your feelings are valid and uh, find your community. And that's what's great about the MISO Foundation is we are such a really good community. Yeah. I guess I, I, my, my response to people is always the same. Uh, get thee to a psychiatrist. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's so important to have good mental health when you are kind of set free after your diagnosis and treatment. Um, it doesn't have to be a psychiatrist. It could be a social worker. It can be, you know, whatever, even, even the MISO foundation itself, just the people within the foundation, but you have to, you're gonna experience really intense emotions and fears um, that other people may or may not um, be able to comprehend. Um, you know, other, I mean, a lot, it's very cancer specific, of course. Um, but yeah, so for me, it's always a very first, like this evening I'm meeting with someone and we're gonna be talking about his cancer in relationship to his children and things like that. And my response is always the same, man. Just you, you gotta have a counselor of some sort out there you know, once a month, once every couple of months, maybe just the week before your scan, you know, someone to talk to. That's not family. That's not yeah. a friend, you know. Yeah. Family and friends, they try, man, but they can only do so much. Yeah. Unless it's Even a friend you've met through cancer. Unless it's a friend you've met through cancer, which actually <laughs> yeah. makes a huge difference. That does make a big difference, for real. Yeah. I, uh, I agree with John. Um, but I would also, what, what I learned is that is not to, 
not to put up a facade of yes I'm okay, yes I'm fine, I'm laughing, I'm joking, but really deep down I'm 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 frightened to death. Um not necessarily of of today, but like Rick said, it's it's what it's being frightened of the unknown. And for me, you've just got to learn to embrace it, um, accept it as best you can, talk to somebody, um, and it like John said, it doesn't matter who it is. Um, but I would, yeah, the facade, I would not put up a facade and yeah. just come out and be open and honest. And that's the only way you're going to get the right help that you need. If, you know, if, if that, if you need that help. Um, and I put up a facade until my father-in-law sat me down and said, Liam, we're all in the line. We're all queuing up to go. Just that you know a little bit more about you. That's all. Mm-hmm. And after that, yeah, within a week or so of letting that sink in, I just completely broke down and opened up. And since that day, I've not, you know, I've just embraced it, you know, and what will be will be. And I don't worry about tomorrow. Um, I'm not laid back. I might as well be horizontal. Um, so that's that is what I would say is just do not put a facade up and just be just be honest with yourself and others and the right help will come if you speak up. Um, I would say the one thing I say people to people is beware of I use an analogy of a wave. I don't know if anyone's ever been caught in a late in a wave when you get spun around. Mm-hmm. Come back out and you're completely lost and disoriented. And that's how yeah. it was for me because it's so intense when you're yes. in action. And all of a sudden you get spit back out into real life. And so I say to people, okay, make sure that when you come flying out of that wave that you have a line back in, that you know who you can call for help, whether it be emotional help, whether if you're feeling sick, make sure you have a nurse's number or an someone, lifelines, connections, because you, you go from being so intensely taken care of and being looked after to all of a sudden being on your own. Yes. Kind of yes. forget, depending on how long your treatment was. I mean, I don't. I mean, for me, it was seven months of intense, tense, tense, and then all of a sudden, yeah. done. Yeah. I thought, what do I do? You know, yeah. what, how do I spend my days? What? You know, I'm not at the hospital all day. I'm not. I'm not throwing up. I'm. What's happening? Um, so it's 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 a huge transition from active care to end of care. Well, mm. um, <clears throat> and I we don't get prepared enough as patients for that. Um, so, you know, that would be my, just, just prepare it. And for our caregivers to know that we're gonna need lifelines and not just them. Like you said, you know, whether it be a, a, a psychiatrist, a counselor, another cancer patient. Mm-hmm. And even if you're like me, I don't have a cancer network here. I've tried desperately to create one and French don't seem to give it to <laughs> Um so, you know, I thankfully have found all of you and you may be far away, but I'm hey, not too far. Yeah, you're yeah. not too far, Liam. No. Um, but yeah, just finding, having a connection back to, to your healthcare workers and, and psychiatrists and, and whoever else can help. But just to be aware that you're going to be spit back out into real life very quickly. It's a drastic change. I absolutely um, am 
extremely grateful for all of you to be so straightforward and honest with your thoughts and your feelings and your suggestions and your your rawness so i want you to know that i really appreciate that um and liam you said about like you know not hiding behind that facade i, I can tell you sitting in the chair across from 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 clients is it's it's very refreshing when somebody comes in and just says Bleh. just get it all out and then yeah. we can deal with it right there's yeah, no point there's no there's no possibility for help if you don't share what you're what you're going through, um, absolutely. As, absolutely. As good as some of us, well, as good as some of the other therapists might be, um, we're not mind readers. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, it, it's very refreshing to hear all of you just be so honest. I want you to know how much I appreciate that, and I'm sure that everybody watching this will as well. Thank you, thank you, because this was literally just a conversation that we had in a car, and seeing it come to fruition and seeing it be real and, and become part of Miso TV is really exciting because right now we need these connections more than ever because we don't know when we're gonna be able to gather again. Mm -hmm. And so there will be more of these community conversations. So I hope that I can count on you guys to jump back in again. Because um, we really wanna draw more people in and, and I think getting to know each individual for who they are, not just the disease is vital.